I'm Elizabeth Rushing, and this is Humanity in War, an ICRC podcast on all things humanitarian law and policy. Welcome back to Humanity in War. Today, I am honored to be hosting a truly special guest during a truly busy time, ICRC President Peter Maurer, who is nearing the end of his 10-year term here with us. Thank you so much for joining us today, Peter. Thanks for having me, Lindsay. Like many of our colleagues here at ICRC, and really anyone with an interest or stake in the humanitarian sphere, I've been following your career, and I'm really impressed by the impact of it from your time as an ambassador and permanent representative of Switzerland to the United Nations, to the time that you spent as the uh, Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs in Bern. But for the last 10 years, you've been steering our ship here at ICRC, which under your leadership carries out humanitarian work in over 80 countries worldwide. So you began your mandate with the ICRC in 2012. And at this time, we had the Horn of Africa, which was experiencing the largest humanitarian crisis. Afghanistan was steadily deteriorating into protracted conflict, which we still see today. And the war in Syria was just starting to reach Damascus and Aleppo. And this is a large question, but during these 10 years, what trends of armed conflict have the ICRC observed? And how have these trends shaped the humanitarian needs that we're witnessing today? Well, indeed, it's a large question, but let me approach it from a couple of angles. Angles. You have mentioned Afghanistan, the Horn of Africa, and already in 2012, we were confronted with long-term protracted conflict situations which had lasted for a long time already at that moment. And the longevity of crises was something which has further become clear as we moved into the 2012s, 2015s, 2020s. And so in addition to long-term protracted crises like Afghanistan, uh, where we have already been there for 20 years in 2012 or more, we had new conflicts emerging, and you mentioned it with Syria. Uh, and I would add to the Syria, uh, the Sahel, because I still remember the first day at the ICRC, beginning of July 2012, and the director of operations came uh, at 8.30 or 9 in the morning, explaining to me that we needed to approve a special credit because the Mujahor movement had just overrun the north of Mali and we had 500,000 people displaced and probably the double of animals uh, to be attended and we needed emergency aid and uh, emergency credits. Mm. And I think... To be confronted in the first hour in the job with such a new emergency of which I had barely heard uh, mm -hmm. from the newspapers was an impressive entry into that, into that job. So my point here is only 2012 in retrospect may have been something of a threshold year in which 
old conflicts like the Horn, Afghanistan, and others persisted, while new added to the equation. Of course, the Middle East became such a dominant feature. You mentioned Syria, uh, Iraq, Yemen, uh, which uh, really the conflict dynamic uh, became much more clearer. And I think the Syrian conflict has dominated my whole tenure, tenure after, uh, over the last uh, over the last ten years. If we look a little bit more analytical, I always like to think about conflict dynamics in terms of actors, weapons, battlefields, strategies. And here, looking back over 10 years, I think we have seen a multiplication and diversification of actors. Mm -hmm. The fragmentation of the conflict landscape has been enormous. And when I explain international humanitarian law outside of this organization, by sense of plausibility, I always explain that as we engage with actors to conflict and these actors multiply by three, four, five, or ten, the our job of ensuring respect for international humanitarian law becomes more complex because it's a high number of non-state armed groups, it's private military and security companies adding to the equation, it's of course states and belligerents, it's all kinds of actors which have dominated the last ten years and which came to the battlefield and increased the challenges with which we are confronted. If we look at the weapons side, the lethality of weapons and weapons going into urban area and uh, unfolding its destructive potential in urban area with not only individual consequences for people, but with the destructions of systems, water systems, health systems, sanitation systems massive population displacements, I would say this modernization of weaponry has been one of the big concerns and developments that we have seen over the last 10 years. And then, of course, talking about weapons, and you have discussed in, uh, in your podcast and in other podcasts at the ICRC, we have discussed this issue. It's really the digitalization of warfare mm. and of weaponry, which we have uh, experienced over the last 10 years. I'm still fascinated when I remember my first year in the job that autonomous weapon systems were pretty science fiction mm -hmm. uh, in 2012. And they are seriously discussed today. Mm -hmm. And it measures a little bit what kind of challenge were confronted with. And maybe the last point I wanted to mention in the kind of transformation of the conflict landscape is indeed the battlefield aspect. Uh, uh, we have, in addition to the war on land, air, and sea, we have seen warfare moving to the cyberspace mm -hmm. and to space and to outer space. So these are just a couple of words and ideas which come to mind when you ask me such a broad question of how have things changed and what uh, what comes to mind first. I think it's the expansion of war into more theaters, 
the deeper impact on people and the critical transformation of violence and war in so many contexts. And there is a reason why we have skyrocketing budgets. There is a reason why all humanitarian actors have doubled or tripled uh, their footprint over the last couple of years. Uh, at the origin, there are drivers of this development. Thank you for that. And let, let's talk a little bit more about that. Because what I'm hearing you say in your very uh, eloquent and succinct recap of the last decade of armed conflict is, you know, we're grappling with a lot of age-old problems since the beginning of war. You know, they've uh, been... Uh, happening in urban centers, but the whole world is urbanizing. And so we're seeing a new twist on urban warfare. And we've always had weapons, but these are modernizing. So there are new, you know, a new twist to old problems is what we're seeing accelerate, if you will, over the last 10 years. So what does that mean for our work uh, at, the, at the ICRC? Um, you mentioned uh, the, the budget increase that all the humanitarian actors have seen. Uh, you o were the president during one of the most historic ones at the ICRC when we went from a budget of 1.1 billion in 2011 to 1.8 billion in 2016. Uh, do you believe that our uh, diplomacy work, our operations work at, at ICRC has been able to keep up with these trends? And put another way, what keeps you up at night as the ICRC president? That's an interesting question, yeah, be because the question also refers to a lot of discussions we have had over the last couple of years. And I hear everybody who tells me, and I would acknowledge that, of course, the structures of the organization, the modus operandi, the level of engagement and how we interact with belligerents in order to do our operational, diplomatic and legal work have fundamentally changed and were not adapted to the growth. While I have heard a lot of, and I have experienced a lot of pressure as a president over time to basically say we, we have to be more modest in our ambition. I have always highlighted that we should rather be more ambitious and then try to cope uh, in terms of organization, diplomatic engagement, legal sophistication, and everything which makes our work valuable to people. And, and I think I do understand that from an internal point of view, there was sometimes discomfort with what many have called the strategy of growth, which they interpreted as being growth for growth. Mm. And I have never advocated for growth for growth. I have always advocated for growth in order to cope mm. with real problems. And, and I think we did have real problems. And in the key trajectories of ICRC's activities in operational work, in legal work, and in diplomatic and policy work, we needed to adapt structures, processes, and approaches. In operations, we have seen it with 
becoming more innovative in terms of technological innovations for delivery, in terms of uh, digitalization of analysis and delivery of uh, humanitarian assistance, in terms of uh, uh, new financial instruments that we deploy for our assistance work like the Humanitarian Impact Bond. Of course, I am a, a diplomat from training and profession before I joined the ICRC. And I, I have always thought from the very beginning in the organization that in a world which is increasingly connected, where the autonomy of the humanitarian space and the humanitarian sector would not be able to just be carried over into the future, where there is what many of our colleagues call politicization. I don't know exactly what the word means, but I think we do understand that we live in a period where donors ask for accountability. Politicians want somehow a convergence of humanitarian and political objectives to show to their electorates. Uh, digitalization leads to more connectivity and interactivity between development, humanitarian, climate change, human rights, governance activities, and therefore the distinct character of which the organization was built for so many decades eroded. And my response to that erosion was not withdraw into the famous protection, protecting yourself from influence, but engaging with all those sectors to negotiate and define what humanitarianism 2.0 is. Mm -hmm. How do you define the interface between political and humanitarian peace efforts and humanitarian efforts? And just being neutral, impartial and independent and detached from the rest of the world and trying to have an isolated life on our own is not really an option. And mm -hmm. I must say, it struck me in one of my first conversations with a foreign minister when I, yeah, you, you start the conversation to try out talking points. And I had these talking points basically to complain about politicization of the humanitarian space. And, and then this minister told me, well, but look, I, I don't think uh, I'm politicizing the humanitarian space. I'm just thinking political about the humanitarian <laughs> space. <laughs> and, I, <laughs> I, and I realized that there is something to carve out here, to define, to explain, to conceptually get a stronger grip on how you influence the world around in order to be able to preserve neutral and partial humanitarianism. And this proactive approach, I think, was important in all those three areas that you have mentioned. Diplomacy, policy, 
law and operational delivery. Thank you for that. And thank you also for, for kind of placing it against uh, this backdrop of some quite major political shifts over this decade uh, as well. And how do you think, uh, looking back on your time as president, uh, and particularly as our chief humanitarian diplomat, what are some of the proudest moments that you have over the last 10 years? And if I can, some of the more disappointing ones. Like, what will you take away with, with this time? Well, look, it's in the nature of what we do that my proudest moment were probably not the classical diplomatic moments. Uh, the proudest moment for me, for what the organization did, was really when I saw diplomacy at work on front lines, when I saw that we had access, that we were delivering, that there we, we made it happen and what we did changed the reality of people, albeit sometimes only marginally. I, I still... I take my biggest satisfaction from our ability to respond at front lines. And some of it has diplomatic components. It wouldn't be possible if we wouldn't manage diplomacy in a way which gives us a license to operate and gives us access to front lines and allows us to explain to political decision maker what we need what type of decisions we need in order to be able to carve out that humanitarian space. But I think we were and we are still an organization with a new, unique capacity to negotiate those spaces. And that's certainly great that we are able to do that. On a less positive side... Uh, Look, I'm not over-impressed by what the international diplomatic structures and policy structures deliver today in terms of solutions for people. I still believe that there is a, a lot of detachment of the diplomacy and policy machinery of the international community from the reality of what conflict means and what conflict means for people. If there is one thing which fulfilled me always with pride and also happiness about the job I have is when I had the impression that I could translate some of the impact of warfare and what people were experiencing into the heads of political decision makers. Not that I could always see the penny dropping, but you had moments when you had the impression because of the convincing power of the reality in the field that as a president you represent when you enter a minister's office, that we could advance in terms of license to operate, space for our organization, ability to reach people. And I think that's 
also what probably the unique role of a president of ICRC is. Uh, it's a it's basically to be the translator between the suffering of people and communities from war and the political, military and security decision makers who are engaged in warfare and highlighting the costs of warfare for the people politicians pretend to serve is one of the most, I think, important functions that I could have. And there were moments of pride when I managed to get the arguments in line in a way that I saw that it left people with a little bit of an impression. When you're able to resonate and carry these messages on. I imagine that's a very heavy responsibility uh, and that you're in this very deep period of reflection now in your final days uh, of your term. So thank you for looking back uh, over the last 10 years. Uh, if I may, it would be great also to, to look forward for a moment, you know, based on this experience over the last decade. Um, what do you see next? What do you anticipate over the next 10 years uh, across the humanitarian landscape? And also, what advice would you have for young humanitarians who are just entering this sector now? Well, great question. Uh, um, what would I anticipate? I, I would anticipate basically the end of the dominance or the end of the traditional humanitarian modus operandi. I don't think that fundraising to transform money into services for people, international fundraising to develop to, to develop and transform it into local services for people is a model that has seen its best days, which may be still be in major catastrophes, a model at work, but I don't see it to be the dominant modus operandi of humanitarian work in five years. Mm. I think we will see more self-conscious and more driving local and national authorities being in in the driving seat of the humanitarian response. As an international organization, we still have an important function to support and to help modernize sometimes also to protect this local dynamics and local uh, response capacities, to help innovate, to refinance or finance some of these activities. So I see a transformation where a dominant model which has dominated the international community has translated in maximum and increasing budgets is coming to a halt and where a more sophisticated support structure from the international community and much more sophisticated services will be needed by local operators uh, in contexts of of crisis. Uh, I think that's for the humanitarian sector. For warfare 
and violence, I fear that we will see a further exacerbation and acceleration of the trends that we have seen in the past. Uh, digital and cyber warfare will have gone in the in the past and the next 10 years from science fiction to fiction to reality mm-hmm. to dominant feature. And I can't see at the present moment uh, what will change that, but it probably changes quite fundamentally. I would suspect from what I have seen recently happening in in many conflicts that we will also see a transformation of the character of violence. In, in a sense that probably the intertwining of criminal and political violence will become a very dominant feature. And, and in that sense, I see a real challenge uh, with everything hybrid happening and with everything digital being reinforced or not. That's a, some of the thoughts I have when looking into the future. Some of it is reality, but not yet so clear reality. And uh, I think it's almost like in the famous music piece entitled Something Almost Been Said. Uh, we feel that things are changing, but we don't see yet clearly what the dominant feature will be. So it's not necessarily uplifting uh, the the landscape over the next decade, but it's certainly realistic and it's based on uh, very solid experience. So for that, it's very valuable. And so I thank you for, for sharing that insight. I do just have one last question for you that I ask all of my guests. Um, it's a little more lighthearted. What is the book on your nightstand that you're reading right now? And it doesn't have to be the Geneva Conventions. Yeah, that's be. good that it hasn't <laughs> to be the Geneva Conventions. Yes. Look, I have uh, periods of intense reading. Uh, mm-hmm. To be very frank, at the present moment, uh, I have only books on the bookshelf I will read mm-hmm. and books <laughs> on the bookshelf I have read. But uh, if you... Uh, want one book which uh, has impressed me and which I read over summer is uh, uh, really uh, the postman of uh, 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 The uh, it has been number one in all the libraries uh, I will have to look up the title uh, but it's not Il Postino. Il Postino, yeah. Ah, it's, is okay. it called yeah, yeah. Il Postino mm-hmm. in the libraries? Yes. I, I read mm-hmm. it in the German translation okay. for once. But mm-hmm. Il Postino is a fabulous book mm-hmm. because uh, it it is an uplifting story. Mm-hmm. And it resonates uh, also for an organization like ours. You know... Uh, the secrecy of letters and the confidentiality of letters is at the basis of postal services and and the trust that whole societies had in postal services and and I think it's wonderful that this man can imitate writings and can intervene 
mm. in a positive way in history. And so it's a fascinating book. What a uh, lovely connection to make. It, it, it harkens back uh, images of Red Cross messages as well. And some of the, you know, I mean, the, the name of this podcast is Humanity in War. And that is what we're trying to capture as well, are these moments of very human nature that does come out in a more beautiful way. Uh, so that's a lovely it, it uh, is and, connection. And it is interesting because uh, of the community and the village that is the main actor mm. in that book. And and I think it reminds us also as humanitarians, uh, we always think in concepts and and processes and and we deal with all those complex and complicated word, words. But at the end of the day where it counts is is at community level. Uh, peace and and non-peace is sometimes a, a sort of a very fine line which happens in the village mm -hmm. and and so i thought it was a great a great book which triggered a lot of reflection uh, at the end of my mandate thank you for that food for thought and everything else that we discussed today from Protracted conflicts compounded by new ones to humanitarianism 2.0, uh, your role as a translator, uh, and really just sharing your, your insight and uh, from the last 10 years and your time during this extremely busy period. Uh, we're, we're very grateful for this, and I'm sure I can thank you on behalf of our listeners as well. Um, I wish you all the best in these final, these final days of your term. And uh, it was really a pleasure getting to know you a bit more. Thank you for joining us. Thanks a lot for having me. And uh, thanks for all the good questions and all the work that you are doing to bring a message out uh, into a broader community. Thank you. Thanks. If you enjoyed this episode of Humanity in War, be sure to check out the ICRC's Humanitarian Law and Policy blog at blogs.icrc.org slash lawandpolicy, a library of posts, all with audio reads on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify. <laughs>